Hello, and welcome to a special bonus episode of the Scary Stuff podcast, featuring Wes Craven's classic, The People Under the Stairs. We recorded this episode earlier this year and released it on Bandcamp in order to raise money for the Bread and Roses Community Fund of Philadelphia. We would like to thank everyone who donated and downloaded the episode then. We decided that we would like to release the episode to all our listeners, and so we were re-releasing it on our normal podcast feed. The link on Bandcamp has been removed and we are no longer raising money, but if you're interested in donating, you can do so by going directly to breadrosesfund.org. The People Under the Stairs is a terrific movie with a message that is very much still relevant today, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Thank you. All right, welcome back to a special episode of the Scary Stuff Podcast. I'm here today with my usual cohorts. We have Eric. Hello, hello, hello. And Nick. Hi, everybody. So today we're doing this special episode, as you heard in the intro, to raise money for the fund that I listed. And all proceeds are going to go to that, but we are going to do our normal look at a movie because that's what we do best. And we hope you enjoy it. Like I said in the intro, today's movie is. People Under the Stairs by Wes, well, written and directed, written by Wes Craven? Written, directed, and produced. Boy, I should have, we decided to do this on relatively short notice, so my notes are not great. (laughs) I know Wes Craven was involved somehow. (laughs) Deeply, he was deeply involved. (laughs) (laughs) On this special episode, we're doing John Carpenter's The People in the House. (laughs) (laughs) This movie was brought to us by Universal Pictures. We were also responsible for such movies as Us, Happy Death Day, Krampus, and Green Inferno. By Live Films. We were also brought- hold, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. I would like to know how you came up with those particular movies in that list. I have my ways. <laughs> hey, you have to be selective with Universal. It's important to note that they've been around and in business you know, back you know, before talkies were a thing. So, <laughs> and of all of that history, you went with Krampus. Hell's yes. Green <laughs> Inferno. Holy shit. <laughs> I was trying to keep it more recent. No, that works. That works. It was also brought to us by Alive Films, who brought a shocker, They Live, and Prince of Darkness. And of course, like you said, Wes Craven, who is also uh, glorious with uh, The Hills Have Eyes, A Nightmare on Elm Street and scream and also shot yeah and since we just made the joke about john carpenter funnily enough the reason Wes craven got this slot was apparently carpenter had a deal with the live films bailed and they were like all right we got these open slots do you want them Wes? and he took them over so he ended up finishing out basically the available slots that carpenter had with his own movies you know it's funny i was i was reading reviews of this from around that time so i was curious how it was viewed i know it did well in theaters made quite a bit of money yeah and one of the reviews I read is like, well, this movie is indicative of how far Wes Craven has fallen and really lost his game. And all I can think is this came out before Scream. <laughs> this person's going to eat a big basket full of crow. <laughs> also, it's a good movie. I love this movie. I remember this movie as a kid. It's fantastic. Yeah, that's something I wanted to mention. So, Nick, you had seen this before. I own it. Yeah, seen it, own it, love it. Uh, Jake, you hadn't. I had not. I didn't even know what it was about, except, you know, people 
under the stairs. So I guess I kind of knew what it was about. <laughs> <laughs> you could hazard a guess. <laughs> For me, I, I couldn't remember if I had seen the whole thing or just seen bits of it. And apparently all I've seen were bits of it because all I remembered of it was the outfit that the male villain wears uh, for a portion of the film, which we won't say what it is. We'll get to it in a second. But I had never seen one of those before, and I just thought, that's a really nifty costume design. <laughs> I, I too, did not understand the purpose of it until later in life. <laughs> so when you guys both saw Pulp Fiction, you were like, oh, yep. Now I get it. That's exactly. <laughs> that's no joke. That's what it was. I said, oh, that's what I thought it was this really elaborate costume design. Oh, man. Oh, that's hilarious. So, yeah. So my first time seeing this from start to finish. Oh, boy, was this a pleasant surprise. Mm -hmm. This is a great movie. I was not expecting horror movie Home Alone at all <laughs> going into this. <laughs> I certainly had no idea the politics. I mean, I, you know, when we were deciding what movie to, to pick for this particular episode, we wanted to do something that was topical and had a lot of the themes that have been important to the country in the last week. And only the last week because of how we operate. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I will not rant. I will. Anyway, so I was <laughs> I was really pleasantly surprised at the politics of the movie and how on topic they were, I guess. And also a little depressed because this came out in what, 1990, 1991, 91, which is much further away than I really want to admit. Nobody give me an exact number. I don't want to think about it while I'm trying to make <laughs> jokes. I was in high school at the time. And now I'm depressed. I, I was, was not. not. <laughs> yeah, you're young. I know. <laughs> Fuck you both. <laughs> All right, I'm going to point this out. Without giving out our ages, they are not that much younger than I am. Just saying. That's true, but I also don't eat chuckles or Necco wafers, so. <laughs> <laughs> so, this movie... <laughs> Jake watched this movie in between shouting at clouds. <laughs> <laughs> Throws the DVD on his lawn. Get off my lawn, you damn movie. What's funny is I guarantee if you just looked at Nick and I and you didn't know us and we didn't speak or anything like that, you would think Nick was older than I am. So I'm going to ride with that one. It's not the years. It's the mileage. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this movie starts with a tarot card reading. By, Sorry, uh, now I'm just picturing. I just want to. Yeah, Nick really looks like ten miles of bad country road. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a line I first heard describing Ace Freely of Kiss. So anyway, do with that information as you will. <laughs> I could see that. <laughs> so movie starts with a tarot card reading from the lead role's sister Ruby, played by mm -hmm. Kelly Jo Minter, who most might know from the Nightmare on Elm Street movie Five, Five. The Dream Child. Oh, uh, that's like one of my favorites. I mean, Dream Warriors is my favorite favorite, but five is damn good. I don't remember five. Which one is five? Is that the Q-tip in the ear one? Yes, no. I think. No, that's six. Freddy's dead. Is Freddy said, sorry, Q-tip in the ear is Freddy's yeah. dead. No. Which is not five? Which is not, not five. five. That's six. No. no, Nightmare on Elm Street 5 is the one that Edgar Wright once mentioned when he was working in a movie theater. They accidentally mixed up the reels and showed the movie out of order and nobody complained. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, five is actually pretty good. I had three. Oh, shit. It's that person moments in mm -hmm. the people under the stairs. And 
this was the first one. It was like, I know that voice. It's like, it's Yvonne from Nightmare 5. <laughs> That's funny. I I have no memory. Like, I, I've seen at least the first three Nightmare on Elm Streets and part of six or whatever one's Freddy's Dead, which is still the only movie I've ever walked out of in the theaters. <laughs> <laughs> because of the Q-tip scene? Uh, that didn't help. <laughs> it had more to do with I was there with a group of people and we weren't really enjoying it which meant we were going to get noisy, which meant we were going to ruin other people's enjoyment. So we just decided to be noisy outside rather than ruin other people's enjoyment. Because while we were delinquents and jerks, we weren't super delinquents and jerks. And we've always respected <laughs> film. The most polite delinquents. Very considerate of you. <laughs> so yeah, she's doing a tarot card reading and she's doing it for her brother. His name is Poindexter, but everyone calls him Fool. It's this, this reading. What a pair of options. <laughs> well what's your real name poindexter ah so which do you prefer i fool <laughs> you'd rather go by fool than poindexter wouldn't you yes so the damned if you do of naming conventions you yeah. changed your name to the train yeah it used to be shithouse no so. <laughs> good choice it's a good choice so the tarot card reading predicts judgment death and the devil and it's, it's basically saying that there's a lot coming of change and, and danger in his coming. And Fool is played by Brandon Quinton Adams, who's also known for his roles in The Sandlot and The Mighty Ducks. Fantastic uh, actor as well, in my opinion. Yeah, we'll mention this again later probably, but the kids are very, very good in this. Absolutely. So yeah, he's living in not great situations. His mother is sick and dying from cancer. He's trying to take care of a brother of his who is an addict. And his older sister is trying to basically keep the family together. But even she has to uh, work as a prostitute to help bring in some money uh, to keep things going. And her boyfriend is named Leroy, played by Ving Rames. Yay. Actor needs no introduction. Love that man. That was her boyfriend? Yes. I should have watched this movie twice. <laughs> what they established specifically is that they are friends from childhood. So you can kind of infer boyfriend. But he introduces himself as just saying, I'm a friend of Ruby's. So, yeah, friends at minimum. At minimum, yeah. I mean, look, I would date Ving Rhames. Come on, man's awesome. It's a good looking man. <laughs> this is really where you kind of get introduced to this film's politics. They are not subtle. Wes Craven, I mean, it's a little overdone in terms of the, you know, rundown slum hovel kind of aesthetic he applies to it. But it does very much establish that they are the victims of. You know, the system that encourages slumlords to slumlord. Squeeze every penny out of you and leave you destitute just to kick you out and then upgrade your establishment for other people to pay more. Yeah. Yeah. They want to gentrify the neighborhood to put in nice condos. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to mention, too, is just from the opening scene, kind of the attention to detail and the production design of this. So the opening sequence is a shot of the various tarot cards as Fool's having his reading done. But then it cuts to a shot of him sitting there reading and you can scan the books behind him. So the books behind him are, I paused it so I could try to go through them in order, but it's The Life and Words of Martin Luther King by Ira Peck. There's two Alice Walker collections. One is Goodnight Willie Lee, I'll See You in the Morning. The other one is Revolutionary Petunias and Other Poems. The one directly behind Fool is Coltrane, Chasing the Train by J.C. Thomas. And then as he stands up, there's a collected edition of the writings of W.E.B. Du Bois. So it was, I had a really fun time just pausing it and kind of picking out the books. But just... In multiple scenes in this movie, the attention to detail and the production design is a lot of fun. It's beautiful. I mean, top to bottom, 
it's very immersive. It feels very alive and organic. It's all feels like it's meant to be. And everything is just wonderfully portrayed. Yeah. And to piggyback on that topic real quick, just since you brought it up, the DP on this, her name was Sandy Sissel. And I say she, so she is a woman. And having a woman as a director of photography was exceedingly rare at the time. This is the only film that Wes Craven worked with her on, but she had done some narrative films. She did Hello Bombay with Mira Nair, and she did a TV series with Michael Mann, but her background was in documentaries. She just did a lot of news work, and if you look at her IMDb, it's tons and tons of documentaries. And that's the aesthetic that Wes Craven went after in terms of who he was looking for to help lens this and help present this in terms of how you visualize it. So despite the rampant absurdity we're about to get into for the rest of the plot. <laughs> he wanted the presentation of it clearly to be as grounded and shot as austerely and realistically as possible. And he accomplishes it, like, yeah. hands down. It's it's wonderfully portrayed. It's a good-looking movie. Yes, very much so. You know, it looks of its time, but not so much that it, it feels dated or hackneyed or anything like no. that. No, no. Yeah. So, Ving Rhames lets Fool know that they are being evicted. Apparently, they ended up being three days late on a rent payment, which, per the lease, says they now have to pay triple the rent or get out. And there's just no way they can do this. Fool's like, doesn't he know that, you know, my sister's pregnant and mom's sick? And they're like, he knows. He just does not care. And then Leroy says he knows a way to get some to help out the family. And they also establish in this scene, too, that they are the last family in the building. So the instant they're gone, it's going to be demolished. Yep. And after he mentions that it's going to be demolished, we cut to the fireplace of our two villains. And the wood in the fireplace is the series of table legs, or what appear to be table legs, stacked on top of each other. And in a line of dialogue that comes shortly thereafter, they expressly mention that they light their fire using furniture from the, for the homes of the people that they evict and then demolish. As we establish, the politics are not subtle. Yeah, nope. Subtle as a sledgehammer, as you said in the past. And yeah, it's so on the nose, but it's so like literally from the very first image. It's like, are those fucking table legs in the yep. fireplace? And he's eating a rack of ribs, which is pretty clearly from a person. Uh, yeah, it's it's very questionable meat. <laughs> As he's spitting out buckshot. Yep. So the first shot of our villains, it opens with a shot of this fireplace, and then it's this pullback from there. And then the male villain comes into frame. So now I'll mention up front that the villains are never, in the script, the villains are never named. They're just referred to as man and woman. You get their last name later in the script, and you can overhear the first name for the man at one point. but. For script purposes, they're just referred to as man, woman. And they refer to each other as mommy and daddy. As mommy and daddy, which has some really even more unsettling overtones as once you get to the last chunk of the film. Well, it's also, it's it's because they're similar crumbs for the Reagans. Yes. They're absolutely Ron and Nancy Reagan, you know, kind of over the top, but not quite that over the top as, you know, somebody who grew up in the 80s with those people. It was immediate. It was like, oh, yeah, Ron and Nancy. Then they say, you know, mommy and daddy. And Ron and Nancy, Ron called Nancy mommy, and she called him Ronnie. So I guess that's slightly different. But uh, again, not subtle yeah. in the least. Yeah. And very creepy, which was much like, you know, Nancy Reagan calling Ronald Reagan 
it, it was always creepy to me, even as a kid. It's like, it's her <laughs> husband. Why does, why does she, why does he call her mommy? And I, and I, I realize that's an older affectation, kind of a boomer thing. And prior to that, yeah. but it, I have always found it endlessly creepy. And when the president and the first lady do it, it's like, I understand why every parody video has you in it. <laughs> yeah. And as they come into frame, their hairstyles are also evocative yep. of, um, of the Reagans as well. But so as the camera pulls back, the man comes into frame first, sitting there, as you mentioned, eating ribs. Played by Everett yeah. McGill. Played by Everett McGill. So this was, I, I got really excited. Yep. As I said, Holy shit, it's Big Ed. And as soon as I thought that, the camera went back even further. And we see Wendy Robbie. Wendy Robbie. And at that point, I about jumped out of my seat in my apartment. I was like, <laughs> it's the Hurleys. It's the Hurleys. There's grease on the cotton balls. The runners are silent. <laughs> I was so excited. It's So these are the two actors, Everett McGill and Wendy Robbie. If you haven't seen Twin Peaks, they play a, a couple in that. He specifically chose them from what he saw their act, their acting in Twin Peaks. I had no idea they were in this, and I was so excited when I saw him. And likewise, we mentioned earlier how the young actors are terrific in this. These two are likewise fantastic. I mm-hmm. uh, so yeah, so the as Nick mentioned, it, the we're introduced to them. The camera's pulling back. The man is hunched over a rack of ribs. We see their daughter come into frame, daughter by the name of Alice, who's played by A.J. Langer. It's her film debut, though most may know her from My So-Called Life, playing Rayanne. Oh, nice. I've never mm-hmm. seen it. It's fantastic. She comes into frame, bringing a drink to the to the man played by Everett McGill, and he instantly leers at her in a creepy way. So then we get the woman elaborating on that they're about to evict this family. As soon as they get them evicted, they're going to bulldoze the place. Put up offices. We're going to build a nice condominium. And she says specifically, get clean people in there. Yep. And then she has the line, lots of nice wood for my fireplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the the whole rich people getting rich on the backs of the poor and literally eating them is a consistent theme. Very much on display here. <laughs> very much what this movie is about is the... When I said in the intro an indictment of 80s politics, I mean, that's what we're talking about is the, these people are slum lords. The main family lives in a slum. Although I will say this, they don't nobleize the poor people in this the way a lot of movies at the time did. I kept thinking about, and you know, I, I'm blanking on the name of it. The one about the aliens that come and save a building full of poor people. Oh, it's uh, batteries not included. Batteries not oh, included. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which Where is it's a whole building fantastic. for a very noble, very noble <laughs> poor people. To some degree, it's the same plot as this, just without all the fucking weird shit. <laughs> all I remember about that movie is robots flipping cheeseburgers. That's all yes, I remember. they are the cutest little <laughs> things it. ever. I watched it a lot as a kid, but I don't remember it at all beyond them flipping cheeseburgers. They're like these really little tiny little flying saucers, and like one gets pregnant and shoots out these other little baby flying saucers. It's so Aww. cute! Oh my god! If you don't remember it, go watch it right now. Everybody at home, I realize this is scary stuff, but go watch Batteries Not Included. <laughs> I've been meaning to go back and revisit it ever since I found out Brad Bird worked on it. Mm-hmm. But I haven't gotten around to it yet. But it, it's essentially the same plot as this, just with aliens instead of, you know, mutant whatever it's a bit of a stretch but i see what you're saying (laughs) (laughs) 
point is slum lords and and poor yeah, people. It's yeah. just that one really that's true. leans into the nobility of the poor, whereas this one's a bit more realistic and the survival nature mm-hmm. of the underclass in our country. I'm trying to not get too political, and it's real hard. <laughs> <laughs> so it skips forward to the next day, and Ving Rhames is still uh, Leroy is still pushing the job angle on uh, on Fool. Uh, saying he could be a real big help for this, you know, they're going to rob the landlord. They, they, someone else had robbed this liquor store, and they found this mail connects to a um, company that is the same company that is evicting them, but it has an address, so they know where the landlord lives, and that the job is to literally rob the landlord who deserves it, who is awful, and this will get the money they need not only to pay the rent, but the rumor is is that the landlord is sitting on a massive gold coin collection and that it should be enough to help out the mother and her surgery as well which apparently is cancer but like uh, an easy one to fix if you can afford it yes all they need is the money and so fool of course goes to his mother and he's just like you know i just want to do right by you and take care of you and he decides to do the job it's interesting it never establishes where the movie is taking place nope but the house itself is in california it was up for sale as of, I think it was April of this year or something like that. It was on the market. Well, it's actually got a pretty interesting history. Is it actually as big as it is in the movie? Because that would be amazing. <laughs> uh, that There's I don't, so I much don't goddamn know. internal real estate in this film. It's unbelievable. <laughs> uh, but I, I live yeah. for it. I love it. But there's no way these many rooms and floors and passages exist. <laughs> this movie is kind of a cartoon in several senses, yes. which we'll get to. But appropriately enough, the inside of the house is essentially hammer space. So. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, very much so. But that, like I said, the house itself does have a... Let me read you. This is from a Rolling Stone article written by uh, Alex Papadamas. Ooh. In real life, the house where most of Wes Craven's The People Under the Stairs takes place is a three-story craftsman-style mansion in the West Adams District of Los Angeles. When the neighborhood's well-to-do white population began moving to the city's west side in the early 1900s, West Adams became a haven for L.A.'s emerging black middle and upper class. Before it was a movie location and a protected historical site, People Under the Stairs House, properly known as the Thomas W. Phillips residence, was the home of the Gone with the Wind actress Butterfly McQueen. In 1945, when white homeowners tried to push the black population out of West Adams, By demanding the enforcement of racially restrictive property ownership covenants, McQueen's neighbor and Oscar-winning co-star Hattie McDaniel led the coalition that fought them and won in court. Nice. How appropriate. Yeah, it really fits. You know, know, they tried to redline people out of there, and it didn't work. And now, years later, they're filming essentially a fable about social justice in this house. And I really kind of appreciated that that's awesome i think fable is a very good description for this movie it very much has a fable yes this feel. movie doesn't take place on planet earth no <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay because it's still a hell of a ride yeah it feels like a ride yes absolutely <laughs> i watched this a few times and normally i always get the blu-rays to watch and prep for the episodes this one it was out of stock so i didn't get it in time for the episode but I'm not canceling that order because I want to own this and I am going to revisit this on my own. I'm really looking forward to seeing all the extras on the disc because they sound great. There's interviews with Wendy Roby, the composer. Uh, I would love to see all those. 
there's a West Craven commentary, so I could certainly send it your way after I get Please. it. But yeah, this movie, there's so much happening. It's so much zany shit that happens <laughs> that it is endlessly rewatchable for the few times I've rewatched it so far. Agreed. Yeah, it once it gets rolling, it, it, a ride is really the best way to describe it. It is a roller coaster. <laughs> it's just a very long roller coaster where the whole time is just you going, wee! And there's yep. never that pause where you're like, okay, I'll catch my breath. You don't get that. Well, it's appropriate because characters actually go down slides at yes, several points. Yes, yes. <laughs> several points. So following the sequence with Fool and his mother, where he establishes he's has convinced himself he's going to do this job, it then cuts back to Alice, the daughter of the two villains, and we see her in her room, and her mother is coming in to collect her dinner plate. Picks it up, looks at it, and speaks to her in this very intimidating fashion. Says, you didn't lick this, did you? And the daughter is... mentioned before that the kids in this are very good, but for A.J. Langer, who plays Alice, just the perpetual look of terror yep. that she has is so effective. It's one thing... Like this, we mentioned before, this movie's a cartoon, and it's... You can talk about what the balance of horror to comedy in this, and it probably leans more comedy, but... One thing they're very good at is taking the ramifications of the horror elements and treating those very seriously. Yes. And one of those is just the perpetual look of fright in Alice's face every time her parents are in the vicinity. Yeah, she is, she is a child abused, and she's living in a hostile environment, and so she is constantly on guard, constantly in fear for her life and for her safety, and that comes through in her betrayal. Like, you're right, even in the humorous bits, she is a child constantly on the defensive and trying to survive as best she can in this horrific situation. Yeah. And as the mother comes into the room, we now get a look at Alice's room itself. And the first thing we see, it's this very austere, old fashioned style children's room. The first thing we see are multiple rows of white shoes laid out. There are three signs in the room, which are children should be seen and not heard. Honor thy father, honor thy mother, and spare the rod, spoil the child. And then there's also a wooden cross and a framed picture of Jesus on the nightstand. So probably worth mentioning at this point that Wes Craven himself came from an extremely reserved Baptist upbringing. His father died when Wes Craven was only four and his mother kind of pivoted them extremely into the church as kind of the coping mechanism for the loss of their father. And he's spoken several times about how he grew up in a very, very strict household, went to religious schools, wasn't allowed to see any movies as a kid, except Disney movies. Disney movies, they were allowed to go see. Every other movie he was told was the work of the devil. So that stringent religious upbringing feeds into a lot of the elements we get here with Allison. I, I love this ongoing theme where you have these hard directors like Craven or Gordon who are as children denied movies and then just like free fall into them the moment they get them. Yep. <laughs> it's this like release of repression. It's like, oh, I'm free. And now I'm just going to do the most scary shit I can do <laughs> on film. And, and I love it. I absolutely love it. I feel like I'm doing wrong by my kids letting them lead like normal, healthy lives. <laughs> well, the Craven whiplash was severe because he went into pornography and then Last House on the Left. So it was, yeah. he, he rebelled about as hard as you can rebel in terms of what his oeuvre was when he went professional. So. The Hills Have Eyes, too, which is not yep. exactly, you know, uh, 
puritanical. No. no, no. In fact, he mentions in interviews that I listened to for this, a lot of people stopped talking to him around that point in his life. But I've never seen it. I've never seen either of those. Actually, it's intense. <laughs> I've seen some of the the remake of the Last House on the Left or whatever the was there a remake of that or am I thinking of something else? There was a remake of both of them. There was a remake of both Last House and Hills Have Eyes. I've seen some of the remake of Last House. I haven't seen the others. I've seen the originals. I've seen the remake of The Hills Have Eyes. I've not seen the remake of Last House. And then he right after that he did Nightmare on Elm Street, right? Uh, not long thereafter. Yeah, yeah. I think it was. Pretty, we're we're gonna pretty have close. to do a Nightmare on Elm Street episode, I guess. Oh my God! Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I, mean, I feel Street like every other horror and... podcast has. I mean, hell, Nightmare on yeah. Elm Street started getting, like distributed from the back of cars. There's so much to say about Nightmare on Elm Street. That's that's, that's going to be a two parter. We'll deal with that later. <laughs> we'll get more into Craven eventually. We promise, because it's either going to be Nightmare on Elm Street or just a. He has plenty of other movies for a spotlight absolutely. episode. Absolutely. So there's no shortage of material on him, and he's a very interesting filmmaker in a lot of respects. But absolutely. So then Big Ed comes in. Sorry, Big Ed is his name from Twin Peaks. Sorry. Uh, I've done Papa. that for entire episodes. I wouldn't apologize. First, the mom tries on the new dress on her. Yes, that's that right. That seems okay. And then she goes to leave and she realizes, wait, there's a fork missing. Yes. And Alice goes looking for it. And this, for me, is the true moment where you know this movie is going to take you for a goddamn ride. Because she's on the ground looking for the fork. When a goddamn hand comes out of the vent and hands her the fork, and she grabs it, you're like, what the hell was that? <laughs> oh, so she stands up, hands her the fork, and that's when daddy shows up. It's it's interesting because we talk about this, you know, going for a ride, you know, horror comedy and all this and that. It's very creepy yes, in the setup. It, like, is. it does a yes. good job of being genuinely unnerving and creepy. Like the performance by Mommy and Ronnie there is unsettling yes. and the fear in the daughter's eyes it's is palpable. unsettling it's palpable yes. you, you can feel it you know and as somebody as i mentioned the the thing about batteries not included but it's it's a standard kind of trope about you know slum lords and poor people and all this so when we see that beginning my brain kind of like okay well i know what to expect but it's a feel-good movie sort of thing and then you get to this house and they establish this stuff and while it's very over the top it's over the top in a very distinctly unsettling and unnerving way. Yep. So you are very aware that this is a horror movie you're watching. And it, it's an interesting comparison of the way the movie sets up your expectations based on other movies you've seen and then kind of subverts them almost immediately. I, I really appreciate it. It was, it was skillfully done. And I was surprised that when the hand comes out, it feels like it's the kind of thing that could be goofy, but it, it's not. No, no. It's an interesting setup i mean the movie does get kind of goofy but at least initially it very much is focusing on keeping you off balance so the gaunt hand comes out hands alice the fork back which she gives her mother and says oh i found it but the mother's still staring a hole in her basically she's no fool yep then daddy enters and immediately drops a racial slur and talks about how his liquor store was robbed the night before and begins making these vague statements about how he's very tense about this. Very tense. And mommy comments, and you're having one of your headaches, and I'm very tense. And then before he goes any further, mommy points out that Alice has been a very bad girl. She says, I believe exactly is, she's been feeding that thing in the walls again. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, shit. <laughs> 
and has the line, remember not to bruise her face. She leaves. Daddy immediately starts pulling his belt off. Alice was looking terrified at the start of the scene. It's just absolute look of fear in her. And Daddy has the line, says, bad girls, burn in hell. And get used to hearing the phrase burn in hell in this movie. It happens a lot. Because they. it's very clear that despite everything these two evil motherfuckers do, they feel righteous and entitled and that they can do whatever the hell they want. It's theirs to take. It's theirs to do. They're the ones in the right. Anyone that upsets them or goes against them is damned and cursed and they do whatever the fuck they want to them. Which is not unlike the way the Reagans were perceived, <laughs> especially after the Iran-Contra scandal. Yep. So he pulls his belt off. Mercifully, we cut away before anything else is seen. Yeah, that's not to say. We cut to Leroy the day after, who they are now scoping out the home. And we are introduced to Leroy's associate, Spencer, mm -hmm. which was my other holy shit moment where I about jumped out of my seat. And this is the most random of all of them. I said, that's Sulu science officer from Star Trek VI. <laughs> <laughs> That's the guy who says, I can confirm the location of Praxis, but I can't confirm the existence of Praxis. <laughs> I have seen Star Trek VI too many fucking times. So yeah, completely random, but I was really excited to see that dude here as Leroy's uh, somewhat skeevy uh, accomplice. So they are scoping out the house in anticipation of, of actually breaking into it on Sunday. This is the only time we establish their last name. Sign on the front of the house is the Robeson House. Yep. Robeson House established 1896. This is old money. Former funeral home, as we find out later. Yep. So we don't see Fool right away. So Spencer says, you know, what's Fool getting up to? And But Leroy mentions that Fool is out scoping out the place in his own way in disguise. And then we see Fool is wearing a Boy Scouts outfit for the Bear Troop, going door to door selling cookies. <laughs> so he's sort of getting an eye of the house just kind of walking around their backyard. They do a nice job with just the soundtrack on this, where it's just nothing but birdsong while he's scoping around the outside of the house. And then Mommy sticks her head out and very confrontational to this young child. And what do you want? And confronting him. Fool tells her, I'm just it's seeing if you're interested in these cookies. And he has a line, which I thought was terrific, which he says, I know it's a bother, but so is cerebral palsy. <laughs> <laughs> what he's raising funds for. And she tells him, get the hell out of here. He asks very politely if he can come and use the restroom. Nope. And she says, nope. And he says, all right, thanks. And she slams the door. Fool goes back to Spencer and Leroy. Yeah, and his only real takeaway from that initial encounter, since he can't get in, is that the windows are locked by being padlocked on the outside. Yep. So Fool returns and relays what little he's found out about the house. Spencer says, all right, I'm going to go ahead and investigate it myself. Although Leroy's trying to tell him now, just wait until Sunday. But Spencer's insists on going. So Spencer goes in disguised as an electrician and goes up on the doorstep. Mommy is still confrontational, not as confrontational as she was with Fool. But during the exchange Spencer has where he's trying to bullshit his way into the house, she notices a metal ring he has, which is a skull. And upon seeing that, decides, all right, you know what? Yeah, go ahead and come in and lets him in, shuts the door. And shortly thereafter, we actually see the vehicle of the Robesons leaving, which they drive off in a 1958 Cadillac Fleetwood that's jet black. <laughs> <laughs>
So Leroy and Fool are commenting on why the hell are they leaving? You know, if Spencer just went in there, why the hell are they leaving now? And they're speculating on why they might have left Spencer behind. Leroy is afraid that Spencer's trying to cut them out of the deal. And now we're getting up to what I'm going to guess was Jake's favorite exchange of the movie. <laughs> I I had the same thought. <laughs> I have a note here. <laughs> There's a few candidates, but this was my number one. This was my, my A slot, which is Fool has the line where he's speculating that maybe Spencer isn't trying to screw him over. And Fool says, well, maybe he's looking around a bit. Make sure it's safe. And Ving Rhames retort is, maybe the president is going to make me secretary of pussy. <laughs> I did enjoy that line. <laughs> My thoughts was Jake's favorite line was the next one coming up actually on the porch. So Leroy is like, eh, you know, he's going to double cross us. We need to get in there, see what's going on. So they go to the back door. And the back door, the, the first one opens relatively easy. It's just a wooden door. But like immediately when you're on the porch, the next thing you see is this like completely solid metal door and he starts working at it and fool's like, you know, it's my 13th birthday. That's unlucky, but we should just turn back now. <laughs> and, and Leroy tells him 13th birthday is unlucky anyway. Too old to get tit, too young to get ass. Fucked either way. <laughs> <laughs> and that was my candidate. All right. Which one won, Jake? While I liked both of them, the 13th birthday is unlucky one was, was uh. probably my favorite. All right. I owe you a Coke. <laughs> I honestly, just about everything Ving Rhames says or does in this movie is awesome. Yes, I just like great. Ving Rhames. Like his next line is, is also solid gold because like he finally cracks the door open. And when the door opens, it doesn't just open the door. Like it slides these shelves completely out of the way, like opening up these windows. And he just like steps back and goes, Iron Great Song. Yeah, he just kind of steps back and goes, I done busted this house's cherry. <laughs> and they immediately. And meet Prince. Meet Prince, the house dog, which just leaps at them. Like, whoa! <laughs> he starts attacking Leroy and, full to his credit, doesn't run, doesn't get spooked. He immediately starts antagonizing the damn dog yep. to try to get it off of Leroy. <laughs> My favorite line from that is. Your mama sleeps with cats. <laughs> so the dog comes after. He jumps over the dog. They slam the door. So now the dog is on the porch safely away from them. But now they're stuck in the house. and need to figure out what to do next. They barricade the door to keep Prince from getting in. They take a look around the interior of this kitchen area that they're in. We get a stark juxtaposition in soundscape. So as before, when Fool was outside, we heard nothing but birdsong. Now when we get inside, it's nothing but the buzzing of flies. Mm -hmm. And there's a great image, too, where they show one of the windowsills, and there is this enormous mound of dead house flies yep. just piled in one corner. Even the flies can't get out. Yep. And then there's all this random noise and dirt coming down from the ceiling and over the... The stove exhaust pipe. Yep. To which Leroy says, oh, even rich people got rats. Which is funny because the last thing this house has is rats. <laughs> yes. there's not a rat in the whole damn place so the fact that soot came down from that exhaust pipe should be very unnerving it's like <laughs> <laughs> well but i mean it's and part of it is that the inside is you know it's this big fancy mansion these people are really rich but it's still disheveled rotten run down so you know the inside of all of this and that again i'm gonna keep harping on it the politics are not subtle <laughs> You know, and the decay of their moral fiber is emanating into the house itself. Right. And my note, like the only note I have on that is that the notion that rich people are rotten is fairly standard and true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to alienate 
anybody who's not a lefty <laughs> by the end of this episode. Which is funny because it's the only one we're selling. <laughs> so now they're in the house and, and they break the cardinal rule. They immediately split the party. So Leroy heads upstairs looking for Spencer. Fool stays downstairs to play guard. But he hears a sound and it leads him to the basement door where he looks down and sees Spencer's clipboard on the stairs. So he heads down. And he's, Spencer, Spencer, you down here? And he hears all these noises and he gets freaked out, starts to run. At which point he remembers Leroy badmouthing him about being scared earlier. And he kind of straightens up a bit more and comes back down. And he hits this little, like, kind of hidden tripwire, which closes the door behind him. And you hear it lock. And then all these flashlights start hitting his face. <laughs> like, there's people down here. <laughs> like, people are flashing flashlights on him, but he can't understand why they're not coming to him or what they're doing. Like, he, he's very confused. What well, we also get during that, when he's first coming down the stairwell and he sees the human shadow, we get the bit which establishes Fool as one of the absolute top five child protagonists ever which is when he sees a human shadow in a creepy basement, his first response is, I ain't stupid, and turns around. <laughs> now, he then talks himself into, oh, nope, I got to commit to this, but he's got good instincts. His instincts were dead on. <laughs> but yeah, like he sees a TV facing the wrong way into like the sealed section. He like turns it and tries to look inside. And this uh... Here's another subtle moment. Yeah. Television is playing footage of the Gulf War. Yep. yep. So the noise and the lights and the yelling spook him, and he and he ends up running again. But this time he trips over Spencer's scared white corpse. Like, his hair has gone completely white. It's just like yeah. colors drained out of him. But Spencer is also holding a gold coin. So Fool takes that, whereas the people on the other side of the wall start dragging him in through this, like, small opening. Fool kind of, like, spooks them off and spools Spencer back out, and it becomes clear they've been chewing on his hand. Yep. So it's it's like, what the hell are these things behind this wall? What's going on? When Sean Whalen, in his film debut, and this time playing Roach, comes leaping out of the shadows and, and grabs at that uh, fool. Fool's like, I'm done. Goes to the stairs, gets halfway up before the stairs flatten into a slide. And he goes sliding right back <laughs> down to the bottom. I was like, yes! <laughs> So you talk about how you had the moment, you know, the Big Ed moment, and you got really excited seeing him. I had that with Sean Whalen, except it was me sitting there going, holy shit, it's Frogert, <laughs> which is what his character was named on Lost. Well, I mean, it was the, the nickname on Lost, but that's what I mainly know him from, is Lost. I forgot he was in that. Because his nickname was Frogert, and how do you forget <laughs> Frogert? Holy shit. <laughs> He also was on a Brooklyn Nine-Nine episode that I saw recently and had a similar reaction. Holy shit, it's Froger. <laughs> yeah, he keeps busy. His IMDb filmography is lengthy. Yep. I like his work. Which makes me feel bad that my main point of reference is calling him Froger. <laughs> <laughs> well, let it be said, a slide cannot stop a 13-year-old child from knowing how to run up a slide. <laughs> he goes right back up the slide stairs, starts banging on the door, and um, the door is opened by Alice. He hops out, and Roach's hands come out to grab him and pull him back, but he slams the door and gets away. But when he turns to look for Alice, she's gone. But he does notice the man and the woman have returned. So he goes to the one Leroy. Yep. Sees Leroy upstairs, lying in a prone position, not moving, similar to the way he found Spencer. Fool is concerned for a moment that Leroy's also passed away. 
comes up, shakes him. And Leroy starts up and scares the shit out of Fool in the process and says, oh, I was listening to the noises in the wall. Why don't you get in there and <laughs> take a look around? <laughs> At which point, Fool breaks the news to Leroy that he found Spencer's dead body by telling him, if you thought he was white before, you should see him now. <laughs> they get up and start to try and sneak out to make their escape get a glimpse of the man and the woman, at which point Fool has the line to Leroy where he said, she got a man with her the size of Detroit, which I loved. <laughs> you know, I meant to look up how tall he actually was, and I didn't remember to do it, but he's a big dude. He's a very big dude. Now, Mommy and Daddy are still stuck at the door that was barricaded when Fool and Leroy first came into the house, but they do manage to kick the corner of the door open just enough for Prince to get in. Well, just before that, they do try the front door. Fool goes up and grabs the door and is immediately flung backwards like five feet because the front doorknob is electrified. Yes, they have a home alone doorknob. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, like you said, they pry the door open enough to get Prince in. They hear him coming. So Leroy has this plan. He's like, OK, you stand out in the middle as bait. I'll wait <laughs> behind the couch. And when he comes to you, I'll come out and brain him. And Fool's like, what? He's like, just do it. All right, so Leroy's waiting. plans are always a little, I don't know about this. <laughs> <laughs> so he's waiting. Prince comes around the corner and just kind of stares at him. And they're just having this like staring contest that are ever so silent. At which point Leroy stands up and goes, hey, what's going on? And, and Prince is like, there you are. And immediately leaps over <laughs> the couch and takes him down. The way they edit around the dog shots are terrific. It's the perfect. Edits, the shots they use. It's just this whip head. And then he jumps on it. <laughs> Prince is biting on Leroy's arms and Leroy can't shake him to save his life. So Fool improvises brilliantly by grabbing Leroy's other arm and dragging both Leroy and Prince over towards the door that we just established was electrified. And now we get the chain lightning sequence yes! when, <laughs> when Fool grabs hold of the doorknob <laughs> himself and the electricity runs through him <laughs> into Leroy into Prince. And I don't have my Blu-ray yet. <laughs> I could tell you when I get it, there will be a not insignificant amount of time spent rewatching the bit, which I watched at least five times <laughs> when I watched it online, <laughs> of the chain lightning sequence just for the Rottweiler puppet that is on Leroy's arm going... <laughs> it, it is a very, very visible moment oh. of puppetry. <laughs> <laughs> and it's perfect. It's so perfect. They all fall down. And that's when you hear mommy in the back door going, I heard him go down. I heard him go down. <laughs> yeah, she has the line too to daddy, which says, get in there, daddy. Make it safe for mommy. Oh, uh, the daddy mommy stuff. is just, yeah. It's very unnerving. So, yeah, they realize that they're in a pickle. The dog is unconscious, but the couple is still coming in through the back door. Front door is not an option. So they run back upstairs trying to find some other egress or options where they immediately find the windows not just locked they're bolted to the frames they're not going anywhere and that's when leroy dimes him he's like i'm a hide go away <laughs> <laughs> they can't break the windows the windows are shatterproof they are silenced can't hear any noise from outside fools on his own they hit a button which causes all the doors to start closing and locking in the house going to completely like force these people to be stuck or isolated wherever they're at then, of course, the man comes into uh, the hallway with a flashlight and a laser-scoped gun, just hunting them down. Yep, Leroy is caught in the hallway. While Fool is in the bathroom. Yep, while Fool is in the bathroom. And the gun is trained on Leroy, and Leroy is shot, and his last words are, despite <laughs> saying 
you're on your own full minutes earlier in his final moments Leroy does call out to full and say you know run full run and and then Leroy is gunned down by daddy yeah it's like Leroy is not completely selfish he's just knows who's first in his book <laughs> yeah but they, they totally mistake his comments and they think that he's calling the man a fool and not actually talking to an accomplice so they do a little victory dance they're happy and fool is left alone wondering what the hell is he supposed to do now that's when the cops show up right uh, shortly hereafter. Shortly thereafter. Before we get to the cops, there's another bit establishing Roach, who is, we saw briefly earlier, uh, who is one of the people under the stairs, quote-unquote from the title, but who has gotten out and who is now ambling about in the walls of the building and is a perpetual nuisance to Daddy. And this is all established in exposition that Alice gives to Fool as he's hiding out in the bathroom with her. So once she says that Daddy spends his time being driven nuts by Roach, <laughs> we then entered the stretch of the movie that I referred to as Tabooney Tunes. <laughs> <laughs> because we get this all of a sudden That's very accurate. Yes. All of a sudden Daddy emerges in full bondage gear, which is what I referred to earlier, which I didn't know what it was when I first saw bits of this movie. It is full body bondage gear, but not just bondage gear, the headpiece on it. There's so many studs and straps. He looks like Bulldozer from the Wrecking Crew. In the Marvel <laughs> <laughs> so it's this insane outfit. The soundtrack is blaring and he is running around the hallways with a pump action shotgun. And his constant refrain is, as he he fires shots at random left and right just into the walls and we've gone full elmer fudd (laughs) it's It's wild it's insane (laughs) like because you think it's a visual you don't forget shortly (laughs) (laughs) it's it's one of those things where the it's at this point most movies you sort of get a handle on them like okay I understand where the movie's going. There may be a few twists and turns. Nope. But this one, it's just this constant fucking escalation of shit. Yep. <laughs> it's the onion of horror films. You're like, oh, yeah. I see what this is. You pull the layer off. You're like, oh, Jesus. What is that? <laughs> like, you think you have a handle on the bad guys at this point. You know, it's Ronnie and Nancy. And then they're in the gimp suit. And you're like, maybe, maybe I was wrong in what I thought of previously I had a handle on. <laughs> you know, and then, yeah. And then, well, you get into it, but yeah. So while he's hunting Roach in the walls, Alice talks to Fool for a bit and explains who the people under the stairs are. Mm. This couple have been kidnapping children. It's the long and short of it for a while now. These kids were all chosen. I got some quoted material here. It says, Mommy and Daddy looked a long time to find the perfect boy child. Each one they found turned out bad. Some saw things they weren't supposed to. Others heard too much. Others talked back. Daddy cut out the bad parts to put the boys in the cellar one by one. They get flashlights and food of some kind. I suppose they're happy in their own way. And Fool goes, yeah, right. What about you? Why can they haven't put you in the cellar? She says, I do not see or hear or speak either. Which is a bit of a callback because when they first get in the house, Fool sees the see no evil, hear no evil the statue, statue yeah. in the kitchen. She kind of compartmentalizes the core evil of this situation is that all these weird voiceless entities in the basement that are kind of cannibalistic and are terrifying are now in the walls are all the results of the 
abuses and terrors inflicted by this couple alone on kidnapped children. It's like, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's rough. It's very rough. There's a visual later with one of the rooms of the house, which makes it even worse. But mm-hmm. So now the cops show up shortly after uh, the daddy begrudgingly <laughs> strips out of his gip gear to go outside. The cops are investigating a van that is parked in their driveway, which is the van Leroy and Spencer were driving earlier. Cops are like, do you know anything about this van being here? And mommy and daddy are like, oh, no, you know, don't know. There were some strange men who were scoping around the house, two men, but we don't know what happened to them. Cops tell him, oh, we should probably keep an eye out. We ran the plates on this van and it was used in a liquor store robbery last night, which triggers mommy and daddy because we found out earlier they own the liquor store. The police leave and while glancing in the back of the van, mommy sees the Bear Troop Boy Scout uniform that Fool was using as a disguise earlier, picks it up, hands it over to daddy and says, oh, no, it wasn't just two people. The boy was with them, too. At which point, Daddy, as soon as he gets the Boy Scout uniform in his hand, gives it a big sniff and just, ugh. Yep. It's uncomfortable on a number of levels. <laughs> so now they realize there's someone else in the house, presumably. So they go back inside, and Prince is once again turned loose on Fool at this point. Who tries to hide in the vents. The vents are large enough for him to enter, and he gets in there, and the dog is trying to push his way into the vent. And while Fool is kind of trying to hold him back with his feet, the dog coughs up Spencer's ring. Yes, Fool has the line where he asks the dog, he said, what are they feeding you? And the dog belches a metal skull ring that we saw on Spencer's finger <laughs> clatters to the ground. <laughs> and then Fool runs into the bathroom. And again, if you needed... <laughs> we, we now get our second dog puppet moment of the movie because... As Fool runs into the bathroom and is shutting the door, Prince the Rottweiler is hot on his heels, and there's a very, very quick shot where he punches this dog puppet right in the face and then shuts the door. And obviously I don't condone violence against animals, but the shot of this kid punching this puppet and how quickly it's edited. It's very similar. One of the episodes we'll have coming out around this time is an episode on Stuart Gordon. We talk about the movie Dagon, which there's a similar scene where someone a priest in this case sticks their head in the room and just gets punched instantly. In the face. <laughs> so someone, someone getting bopped in the face when they're just barely cresting the threshold <laughs> is just always hilarious, especially if it's a puppet. I want to say real quick, I feel they did a fantastic job in this movie of balancing fool's character because he is incredibly competent as a lead role hero while not being unrealistic for his age Mm. like i totally get he's a 13 year old who can pull off the shit he does Mm -hmm. but at the same time he's not he's not helpless he's a strong kid and i love everything about his character anytime he's on the screen it's a good day and he's got a good swing too as he's able to yes as as he preps and takes the lid of the the toilet tank Mm. off and is waiting (laughs) so fool is holed up in the bathroom Daddy blows his way through, blows a hole through. Yeah, like two or three shots. With his shotgun. Sticks his head in. And again, as soon as someone's head crests the door, it's funny every time. He has the comical look like, huh? He has a Looney Tunes <laughs> look. And then, bam! Bashes him over the head and breaks the ceramic lid of a toilet tank oh. over his head. 
<laughs> fool then backs up to a medicine cabinet as daddy it feels very hopeless at this point like he did his play and daddy is still up and after me like what the hell is he supposed to do now when yeah because you shatter a friggin' toilet top over somebody that's not a i'm gonna get up right away moment that's a i wonder how much the hospital bills are gonna cost <laughs> moment <laughs> like that's a good way to collapse somebody's skull <laughs> Yeah, Fool is cornered by Daddy with a shotgun and Prince nipping at the doorway when the medicine cabinet flies open and we see Roach again, who picks up Fool, quickly pulls him into the wall and basically gestures come with me and starts leading Fool down the hall, the, the hollow portion of the wall a bit. And we are officially in hammer space. Yep. Oh my God, it's amazing. And to put a button on it, Daddy... <laughs> Blows open the medicine <laughs> cabinet with a awesome. shotgun. Yeah, because he trains his head. He can't in. figure out how to open the damn thing, so he, he just bursts the wall through. Yeah, so he just blows it open, sticks his head in, and says, "Gonna kill you!" <laughs> and immediately gets beaten in the head with a slingshot. With a slingshot, <laughs> and does this comical oh, and falls over. <laughs> so, again, it's straight. The whole movie is technically Tabooney tunes, but this is kind of the button on the end of the main Tabooney yeah. tunes. <laughs> and Roach is all like. <laughs> <laughs> I, this movie for me is all about fool and roach i love the ever-loving bejesus out of both of them for everything they bring to the <laughs> film and yeah roach carries fool into alice's room where alice establishes that well this you're, you're missing a very important part here so after getting hit in the head daddy just sends the dog in after them oh my god the yeah. slide <laughs> so they're literally running through this maze of internal walls <laughs> to escape the dog yeah daddy sends prince in after him yep. after recovering from his slingshot which is another great shot of two of the dog just leaping <laughs> into the through this hole in the hole in just one go and so they just keep going down path after path you know left turn right turn it just seems like miles of goddamn wall they're going through i don't understand <laughs> but they get to this one section where it's all it's a, the wall is a little bit larger and there's clearly like kind of a makeshift bed there and they're like christmas lights up and fool goes oh is this your place Oh yeah, oh yeah, and it, there's like this two seconds of life is grand, and I'm introducing you to where I live, and they're like, "Oh shit, Prince!" and they take off running again. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit, dog! <laughs> and yeah, Prince is in hot pursuit when he <laughs> when they get to a point where Roach stops stops full and says, to "Wait!" A particular panel where Roach throws a lever, deploying a trap door. <laughs> that Prince falls into a little cart. <laughs> Then immediately goes down this enormous slide, Goonie oh style, God. as he howls the whole way. <laughs> and we now cut to Mommy and Daddy in the kitchen, and Daddy's commenting on, Prince is going to get him, honey. And then the pantry door below them blows open, and this dog comes sliding out, <laughs> and then just sits up and looks at them. Oh, my God. So yeah, this was our second slide sequence of the movie. And it's also worth mentioning, one of the things I watched to kill time today was Never Sleep Again, the documentary on so good. the Nightmare so on Elm Street series. And in referring to all the traps that Heather Langenkamp sets for Freddy in the first movie, Wes Craven comments that, yeah, I have a little bit of a thing for traps. They tend to come up a lot and they show footage from Last House on the left and they show footage from this. Specifically, they show the random fucking barricade of metal yep. pipes that comes in and busts through the wall later in the movie but this counts as well so Wes Craven has a bit of a soft spot apparently for kooky traps <laughs> so the problem is to lure the dog into the proper place for the slide effect to happen they throw a doll to it 
which he grabs a hold of. So when he comes out in the kitchen, he has the doll in his mouth. And the doll, as we learn, is one of the dolls Alice likes to make of the people who come to the house to hold their souls. Yep. But unfortunately, this doll is of fool, so they realize she's seen him. And she apparently makes dolls very quickly. She's like, impressive. <sighs> <laughs> like she summons them. It's like she's a 3D printer. Just doll. <laughs> this is very esoteric, but I'm going to say it anyway. It reminded me of uh, Octonauts. It's this cartoon for my kids. And there's this one penguin who heals people. Like he's the medic. He, he does these bandage effects where he basically just goes, yeah, hi, 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 hi. And like within two seconds, it's a fully bandaged appendage. You know, it's, it's, that's how she crochets things. She just picks up the needles and goes, it's done. <laughs> so yeah, Roach takes Fool to Alice. Fool says thanks, but Roach can't talk because as Alice explains, the reason Roach failed his test as a son was he tried to call for help. So mommy, daddy had his tongue removed. Yep. That was the bad part that, that, got, the bad cut part that got cut out. But Roach escaped the basement and has been living in the walls ever since. This is a short conversation, unfortunately, because as we said, they realized that Alice had seen him. And so they quickly rush into the room. Roach escapes through the wall, but not before he gets shot in the process. And Alice is grabbed by the woman and fooled by the man. And Mommy has the line where she flies into a rage on Alice and has the line, Viper in my bosom, you little Judas! Which again, I had a note, which is, it's been said early in the pod, but to repeat it, it's, despite the comedy, the ramifications of the horror and the evil elements of this are often taken seriously. And again, the parents in this are legitimately unnerving in their performance. And that's when Mommy has the line, total spring cleaning. Oh. And Daddy takes Leroy's body into the basement, along with Fool, and Mommy takes Alice down to the pool of blood where Leroy's body was sitting in the foyer, at which point Alice's stunt double takes a really nasty-looking spill in the blood. As soon as she steps in it, she does this fall, and it just makes me wince every time, and tells her that she needs to start cleaning up this blood. While wearing a white dress, yep, she's screaming at her the whole time about children misbehaving and comments on Roach. She says, I have one of the walls doing his business, God knows where, and forcing Alice to scrub this blood. And then on seeing she's getting the blood on her little white dress, takes her up to the bathroom. And so this is echoing another bonus episode we have coming up. Uh, Yeah, I was going to say, this is not a theme we have to continue on with the people (laughs) being abused in tubs. I'd rather go back to, like, John Gallagher movies (laughs) than this particular thing. It's funny because the bathtub sequence in the other movie we have coming up is probably the most effective horror sequence in that movie. (laughs) Oh, yeah, without a doubt. Which isn't saying much, but... No, but this no, one not. is much more effective. Mm-hmm. But yeah, we have this bathtub sequence in this movie where it's a tub full of scalding hot water and mommy just throws Alice in and Alice is crying out. We see later when she comes out, her skin is visibly darker from the scalding water. Yeah. All the while, mommy's screaming at her saying, it's hot. The fires of hell are hotter. Yep. You know, I guess this is our third bathtub horror moment that we've had on the podcast. So we also had Before I Wake. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That one wins. Tubs are scary. <laughs> that was the most efficient bathtub. <laughs> so yeah, now we cut to Fool waking up in the basement to the really unfortunate image of Daddy, who is 
gutting Leroy. Getting the choice bits from his body. Yeah, he's essentially field dressing him. And taking a few bites along the way. Yep, he has a blood smeared mouth, takes the bits he wants, and then he has this chamber that splits open, which has a pool underneath of just ick and detritus, which he dumps Leroy's body in. And then he leaves Fool behind. I really expected that underwater pit to have more of a play in the plot later. (laughs) And it never really does. It plays into one other kind of weird bit coming up. That's it. Yeah. But Daddy doesn't just leave in the basement. He opens the area to where the kids are, throws Fool in, and figures, well, you know what? They're just going to eat him. And locks him in and heads on upstairs. Yep, he has the line to Mommy. He says, I could have killed him, but I'll let the people under the stairs do it. He says in front of Alice to make her know that, you know, your friend is gone. Give up hope. Just get back in rhythm with what we should be doing. But, you know, as the kids start approaching Fool, kind of like sizing him up, and it's clear they're kind of like uh, friend or food, you know, (laughs) as they get closer. But then they're scared off when... What appears to be the moaning corpse of Leroy appears and they scatter like rats like, oh, hell no. (laughs) And it turns out that it's actually Roach. Roach has showed up and has scared them off to save him. He pulls him out. But of course, they're all freaking out now. So the man sends Prince downstairs to shut them up. So Roach and Fool hide in the furnace where Roach gives him some gold coins. And, you know, that'll make him happy. Let's him know that Alice is up in the vent. And then Roach's wounds taken. Yeah, they established at some point Roach was shot in the gut and passes yeah. away. And it might be the most one of the more moving scenes in the film. Actually, it, it was upsetting for me. Like, oh, not Roach. Yeah, it's it's sad and it's a pretty moving scene. And not to undercut that by the scene I'm about to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> it's certainly more moving than when he catches the arrow in uh, Lost. Yeah. <laughs> Is yeah. that how he goes out? Mm-hmm. So now we get a sequence with Daddy confronting Alice in her bedroom, berating her and telling her the horrible things that are probably being done to fool by the people under the stairs. All the while, Prince is outside barking. There are few things better in a movie (laughs) than a good, what the fuck? Or a really good, shut the fuck up. And we get a good shut the fuck up here. From Daddy, <laughs> Everett McGill is Daddy. When he throws open the door to Prince, shut the fuck up! <laughs> now, he shuts the door, and it's a good shut the fuck up. It's not great, but it's good. What pushes it into the Pantheon, though, is immediately thereafter, we find out Fool is snuck into the room and punches him right in the balls. It's fantastic! <laughs> The full on right in the mean bean machine. A whack. <laughs> so yeah, pretty decent. Shut the fuck up. Coupled with nut shot, catapulted into top ten. The fuck moments of movies. So yep, this was it's fantastic. It was a great one too. The best. What the fuck is still Die Hard. Die Hard three, 3 has the oh, best one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so at this point, Fool follows it up with a uh, bash to the head with a lamp. Fool and Alice flee to the vents. So, of course, the man goes downstairs to try to figure out what went wrong, finds Roach in the furnace and incinerates him. Yep. But that also works to kind of smoke them out of the vents. They bust out of the vent and get back into the walls. And this is where they hit another tripwire, which we talked about the trap from earlier. There's no setup for this at all. It just comes out of nowhere. It's just there in one room adjacent to the wall. They have a fucking spike death trap on wheels. That when they hit this tripwire, it just comes crashing through the wall if someone were on the other side to impale them. But in this case, it just blocks their way and they have to take another route. 
and then Prince is also hot on their tail at this point in the walls. And Fool, um, Alice is trying to get him to leave, but Fool comes to the decision. No, nah, I'm done running. And he just stands his ground to confront this dog. So they begin wrangling with Prince. And now we get the sequence where, following the noise in the walls, Daddy enters a room, which is just this tiny room lit with dozens of candles. We can see little bits of animal heads. We see a stuffed boar head. There's a stuffed raccoon. There is an enormous porcelain statue of Christ. There's a framed picture of Ronald Reagan. Again, very subtle. But the biggest element is along the walls, there are news clippings. And then there's also a series of photos of children. And every single photo of a child, the child is behind chain link fencing. So it was, in all cases, a photograph that was taken from a distance of a kid on the playground. Which just shows the degree to which they were scoping out kids for this awful pseudo family they've been trying to build there's a lot of pictures too yeah the camera doesn't dwell on it long but you get it it's just really again unnerving so daddy hears commotion on one side of the wall he has now put a bayonet on his pump action shotgun that he then drives into the wall and pulls the bayonet loose and it comes away bloody so he then starts celebrating does his other happy dance This is one I'm going to think of time and time again because I've already thought of it multiple times during the week. Oh, I got him, 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 I got him. I got him. So then he's posting to mommy that he got him and she says, prove it. And what the audience knows at this point is that he hasn't stabbed fool, fool pressed Prince up to the wall and it was actually Prince that got stabbed by the bayonet. So daddy takes mommy in to show her, rips open the wall. Prince's body falls out and we get another great oh shit cartoon reaction from from Daddy. You killed Prince! So Daddy goes in pursuit again. Fool and Alice make it out a window to a bit overlooking the entranceway of the house, which is the same courtyard area that Fool was scoping out earlier in the film. Trying to get Alice to leave with him because he says, you know, if we just go right off the edge of this roof, We're going to land in the little fish pond that they've got, and that'll break our fall. But Alice is too afraid. She retreats inside. It's interesting. If you watch her, it's like she's been so abused and has almost like no memory of the outside world whatsoever. It it really comes across that she's not scared of the drop. She's scared of the outside. Yeah. The world is out there, and it's this huge thing that I can't handle what's going on in here. How can you expect me to handle whatever the hell is out there? She is decidedly agoraphobic. Mm -hmm. It was very well done. Yeah. But unfortunately, her doubt and her fear is all the time daddy needs to get to the attic. And Fool is forced to leap without her. And he falls all the way down to the backyard and falls into the pond that's there and escapes. And makes his escape. He's made it. So now we get an edit fade to a little bit of time later and now we get bill fucking Cobbs. Yep. so good i was so excited so happy i love bill Cobbs. and he's looking over the coins that fool has brought with him and says well if i didn't know where you got these from you know i'd force you to take them back but i know how evil those people are that you got them from so starting tomorrow we'll take these out to a coin collector and we'll trade these in for money before he gets there fool has to run through the apartment building and it's a bit of a, a post-apocalyptic kind of wasteland and it's definitely the way people sort of picture slums and inner city places like that. That's a little bit over the top, I think. But uh, other than that, yeah. Yeah. Fool asks him, how much money do you think we're going to be able to get for these coins? 
And so here's where you could figure out that the movie was made in 1991, in case you didn't realize already. <laughs> so they've got these rare gold coins, and Bill Cobb has the line says, well, figuring the rarity of these, you do have enough to pay your rent for a while. Say to the year 2000. <laughs> Fool's very excited about this, and Fool says, and Mama's operation? And Bill Cobb's not, says, and your Mama's operation. Nowadays, that exchange would be, you can pay your rent till the year 2000. And Mama's operation? Fuck no! <laughs> Without insurance? Christ no, kid! You're gonna need more gold coins. You pick one. It's your mama or a house. <laughs> Choose wisely, kid. At which point, they start talking about the actual couple and who they were. And we learn, in this moment, that they are not a couple, per se. Yep. They are... Brother and sister. Yeah. They are brother and sister. They're the tail end of the craziest family in the town. Every generation more insane than the one before it. This is where we learned they started off as running as a funeral home, selling cheap coffins for expensive prices. Then they got their fingers into real estate, started making a lot of money taking over people's homes. The more money they got, the greedier they got. Yep. And the crazier they got. But you know, the police never took them seriously. And their money apparently was able to get them out of whatever troubles they had. Yeah, and speaking of the police not taking them seriously, so shortly thereafter, Bill Cobb warns Fool. He says, I don't want you going back there again. Bill Cobb has the line. He says, when I was a kid, none of us ever walked past that house. Don't go back there. Ruby pleads with Fool. Similarly, Ruby says, I did another tarot reading on you. It didn't look good. So please don't do anything. And Fool states, I made a promise. I got to go back and help Alice. So which he does by... Heading down to the payphone and dialing 911, notifies the police that there's child abuse going on in that household. And we cut to the Department of Child Welfare, who's now investigating Mommy and Daddy's house. And Mommy's going around with a beaming smile, giving them all cookies and coffee. And the police are all pleased as punch to accept. I, I, I this is the, I can, I can rationalize it. But I mean, clearly there has really? to be. Really? You can rationalize it? <laughs> Well, it, it can work, is, is the answer. <laughs> there has to have been a sizable amount of time between when he escaped and when he finally went back to, to do this. Because while the, the police are there, they establish a couple things. One, there is this closet inset, basically, that turns the basement entranceway into just a closet. So basement's completely off the table. No one's going to see it. It's fine and good to go. And they come up with good excuses for why there's a kid's room with no kid in it. You know, there, there are little things like this that, you know, could be problematic, but they try to address it. What they don't remotely address is the numerous number of times this dude blew holes in almost every goddamn wall <laughs> of his house. Took out the bathroom door, the bathroom, like, wall. There, there is so much goddamn property damage here. It's hard to believe he had time to clean it all up. Mm. Unless there is a sizable chunk of time between when Fool left and then called the police. So you can rationalize it, but it still feels like it's a shorter time. He still has a, daddy still has a fresh wound on his head too. Yes. That he has gauze on. So yeah. And to be fair, if this guy's been hunting Frogert in the walls all this time. There are more than what was already there. Right. Well, but he's probably very adept at fixing holes in the walls is what I'm saying. <laughs> I'm just saying that you don't have enough plaster and paint and time to make this work is all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> or spare doors or, or, or medicine. Cabinets. Especially when you consider the Bugs Bunny shit that's actually oh in the walls. God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And the police obviously aren't taking this overly seriously based on the obvious wealth of this family. 
they're just excited to eat the coffee and the cookies. You know, the first time we see the police, they have the, the line that says, there's no sign of child abuse here, but they do have coffee and they're very excited about this free coffee. The head officer in charge is looking over their bedroom and he comments on how expensive the furniture is. The only thing the cops comment on is they do find Alice's bedroom, which is empty at the moment because Alice is nowhere to be seen. And mommy and daddy spin it as, oh, yes, our beloved angel left us a few years ago and you know we miss her dearly. And cops say, good enough for us and bail, to which mommy grumbles after him. I never want to see another cop or cookie in my life. <laughs> they get all burned in hell. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, they close up the house. They lock the doors, turn on the alarm oh. system. One logic thing, they so they don't establish the the, the logic Nick mentioned of the enormous gaping shotgun holes in basically every <laughs> surface, but they do establish in a quick bit of ADR that for the sounds of the people under the stairs that they drug them with horse tranquilizers to put yep. them out. So they, they dosed them. He's making a ruckus. Yep. And they also showed like a secret door where they're hiding all like the weird weapons and outfits. So yeah, I mean, they address a lot. It's just the only thing that, that was hard to address was the property damage. But almost everything else, I'm impressed by the level of attention they go to to say this is why the cops aren't freaking out at this place. I, I think it's nicely done. Cops are gone. Daddy gets back into his favorite outfit. Well, we learned that Fool, in all the hubbub and back and forth, that Mommy and Daddy couldn't watch the doors. So Fool snuck in and has been hiding in a cabinet in the kitchen. So once they lock up the house go to bed, he sneaks out, grabs the fireplace poker. And starts heading up to the bedroom, following their voices. He's actually lured to their bedroom by those voices talking, where we learn it's actually a tape recorder, since they were kind of clearly expecting something like this. A tape recorder of prayers. Yeah. Yep. Now, now lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. My soul to and keep. If, if I, I should kill. kill before I wake. Yeah. Hey. And yet again, another Wes Craven regular, since he did the, you know, Wood Nursery Rhymes 1, 2, Freddy's coming for you, blah, blah. So... So he's like, what the hell is this? Just as the man jumps out in the leather suit and grabs him. Fool to his credit, he immediately gouges his eyes and breaks the poker over his head. Yep. <laughs> and takes off running. And seems surprised that it breaks. <laughs> well, supposedly... That's got to be an outtake. It's not an outtake, but a, a mistake. It's supposed to be a metal poker, yep. obviously. So he goes and he breaks over his head. And he looks off camera, like for direction, yeah, and yeah. then runs off scene. <laughs> Pulls a Jim from the office. <laughs> now, now what? Oh, just go? Okay, I'm going. <laughs> and they leave it in because it works. <laughs> in the moment, you don't question it. You're like, okay, cool, let's go. It's funny. And I, to be fair, I did question a little bit. I'm like, that must, how hard did he hit him with that metal poker? <laughs> But it was like, all right, whatever. It's nothing that takes you out of the movie. No. But it was like, I was just as surprised as the kid. <laughs> but he runs downstairs. He shuts down the security system. And the front door is open. They come down. And they're like, crap, he's gone. Well, shit. We'll have to go get him next time or something. So they go to close the house up and go back up. And you see soot coming from the chimney. Because he has not left the house. He has led them astray. And he is climbing up to the attic. Uh, where he finds Alice. Yep. Alice has been shackled in the attic with her hands above her head. Fool is able to get into the brickwork behind her, knocks a few bricks out of place, and is able to dislodge the bolt that's holding her arms in place to free her. And then Fool and Alice begin trying to pull additional bricks out so they can get Alice out. But then Daddy has come in. Again, he's in his, his outfit. And Alice puts her hands up and makes a noise like, please let me out and pretending to be shackled again. 
At which point, Daddy stops in his tracks uh. and grabs his crotch and utters a soft, Ugh. Oh, it's so not okay. It's not okay at all. And the one of the rare instances where you could say in this movie, thankfully, Mommy intervenes and, yeah. and distracts him <laughs> and calls Daddy away, at which point Alice is freed. And when they go to various portions of the attic to escape, they find out that one of the other things they did while presumably doing all this shit to prepare for the police arrival is rig the house with fucking dynamite. Apparently it had been already rigged with dynamite, unbeknownst to us, but uh, they had added extras in the places they had used to escape, like the window. They also drained the pond and, what did they say? She drained the pond and put a bunch of glass in it Broken glass. Broken glass and stones, yeah. (laughs) They established they can't get out the same way that Fool escaped previously, yep. So. They decide to try to get back down the chimney to the first floor. The couple notices the soot being disturbed and coming down into the bedroom. Couple notices the soot and we get another creepily sexually obsessed exchange between Daddy and Mommy in regards to Alice. So we just saw Daddy grabbing his crotch while approaching Alice, and now they have the exchange where Daddy is saying to Mommy, she did it with him, I know it! And Mommy has the response, not my little girl! And Daddy's response, she's a whore! And again, just this very overtly, uh... Then they're distracted by the soot. Daddy (laughs) takes a shotgun and gets into the base of the chimney, fires a few shots up there, pulls his mask off to see if he can see something. Fool has one more trick from the Bugs Bunny playbook, which is taking a brick that he dislodged previously and dropping it where it lands on Daddy's head, knocks him unconscious, and he sort of slides out. Mommy then gets into the stairwell. Then Fool and Alice, in rapidly sped up footage, descend on her, wrangle with her a bit, wrangle the shotgun away from her. You can see the cord attached to him in this scene, too. Can you? Yeah, it was one of those, I mean, it's obviously the blooper, but it's one of those things like, when did they tie that to themselves? But nope, figured it out almost immediately after. It was like, oh, no, we're not supposed to see that. So they wrangle with mommy, stick fingers up her nose at one point and get free, go past her into the cellar area. Well, they go to the first floor. They go to the first floor, sorry. Where, where basically, you know, the way the chimneys branch is you have the section that you burn the wood when the soot comes up. We also have the back section, which is bringing up the same additional soot from lower levels. Yes. So he sends Alice out onto the first floor saying, you know, get out of here. I got something else I need to do. And then he proceeds down to the basement. <laughs> At which point also, Mommy escapes from the chimney and has the line, Gaka! <laughs> can't bring herself to say shit. So again, one of those. <laughs> it's okay to kill people and eat them, but bad language is right out. <laughs> So Daddy sets off for the basement at that point. Fool is down in the basement. It's at this point the titular people under the stairs begin assisting him in earnest, if I remember correctly. Uh, Yes, I got the impression one of them, it's not explicitly explained, but you get the feeling that one of them actually cared about Roach and noticed Roach was involved with Fool. So he grabs Fool and pulls him away from the others to protect him. Yeah, and if you look at him up in IMDb, his character is listed as the Stairmaster. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a fair name considering what's coming up. I just enjoyed that. Oh, the Stairmaster. (laughs) All right. That's good to know. So Daddy confronts Fool downstairs. Fool has now acquired the shotgun and has the line, you know a prayer? Pumps the shotgun. Say it. But the stairwell triggers, they go sliding down. The people under the stairs grab Fool as Daddy's trying to get a beat on him, now having retrieved the shotgun. 
they drag Fool in front of the padlock that keeps the cell safe, and then as Daddy fires, they drop Fool. Shotgun Blast blows the padlock open, at which point the gate comes open. They pull Fool in, and then the people under the stairs are basically running about with their flashlights running interference while the, as Jake just mentioned, the Stairmaster takes Fool into the back area of their little pen. Now, while this is happening, the front door rings. Yes, so Mommy's downstairs, front door rings, and Mommy goes and opens the door, and we see Ruby, who is Fool's sister, and immediately introduces herself with a line. My name is Ruby Williams, and I represent the association of people who've been unjustly evicted, exploited, and generally fucked over. (laughs) (laughs) At which point, Mommy is basically like, what the fuck? And shuts the door. The door rings again, and you hear this time a male voice say, police. So Mommy opens the door again, and it's Bill Cobb again. He says, just want to finish saying our piece, (laughs) ma'am. At which point, they start laying into Mommy, who has a pistol. And as she begins to threaten them with a pistol and also begins to say another racial slur, crowd shows up. Local neighborhood and presumably the people from yep. other current or past tenants gather yeah. outside. And Ruby Williams has the great line where she says, what are you going to do? Shoot us all? At which point, Mommy is essentially considering it and starts to level the pistol. Just going to throw this out there. This was the moment where that really tied this movie. I mean, there's a few of them, but really tied this movie into what's going on right now in my mind. I have seen stills of that line of dialogue circulating online since watching the movie of just the still of them on the step with the crowd in the background with the subtitle superimposed to say, what are you going to do? Shoot us off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, with all the protests and everything around the country, it very much, it's like, this was really the right movie yep. right now. Nobody <laughs> outside the house is armed, but mommy is. So. Yep. Yep. Right. Yeah. And yeah, like, like you said, Mommy's about to shoot anyway. Mommy's about to utilize the pistol that's in her hand and shoot as many people as she can when Alice comes sailing through the roof with a double stomp maneuver from the top rope. <laughs> she doesn't actually hit Mommy with her feet. She just comes sailing through a vent and just basically collapses onto Mommy and then slants her head on the floor. Pow! At which point we get a great bit of ADR for Ruby. She says, damn, you knocked that bitch cold! <laughs> <laughs> So that takes care of Mommy for the immediate future. We then cut back to the Stairmaster, who is taking Fool into kind of the back corner of their little pen. And he wants to show him something. Doesn't actually say this because he likewise can't speak. There's no tongue. But he gestures and excitedly is, and Fool is able to piece together, oh, you're, you want to show me what's in this room? And it's this embalming room, which is, we find out, is the embalming money bin. The vault. Yep, their Scrooge yeah. McDuck room where they keep all their fortunes. It's so much money and gold coins. Yeah. Like, it's it's a plethora of money, which leads to Fool's line of, damn, now I don't know all the money for the projects is gone. <laughs> oh, he said, no wonder there's no money in the ghetto. Yep. That's it. That's it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Hoarding money, not investing it. This seems really on point with things. While Fool is exploring the embalming money bin, before he goes in there, he lets the Stairmaster know, hey, I know that while Mommy and Daddy were playing around with all the various controls, they left the door open to one portion of the cellar so you can actually get outside. And Stairmaster you know, acknowledges this, and Fool heads into the money bin, and then we cut back to Alice, who's rooting through the kitchen. And mommy confronts her there. Now we get this great lighting in this kitchen sequence. Yes. And also these, we suddenly switch to these really great 
tilted shots. Yeah, these Dutch angle shots. And Alice just has the simple line, says, I see you. And Mommy has the line, and I see you, dearie. And then we get the psycho butcher knife and the psycho string cue as Mommy goes running after Alice. (laughs) They wrangle about wrestling over this butcher knife they fall onto the stairs and the people under the stairs become the people through the stairs as the stairmaster bursts through <laughs> and wrests the knife away from mommy and then and they start bursting out of the walls in various places it's just like every conceivable surface that mommy runs to somewhere there's <laughs> one of the, the people who just comes bursting through i love it which is one of those like if they could do this all along well one could argue that as long as they were trapped in that back room that was secured they couldn't get out but once they got past that first barrier, the house was theirs. And transfixed by all that Gulf War news coverage, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> once you give them a flashlight, they don't need to bust through walls. They descend upon her and throw her into the basement where she finally dies. Yeah, she gets stabbed in the abdomen with the butcher mm-hmm. knife and they dispose of her. And of course, at that point, the man has a choice. He can either go up and deal with the kids or he can stay on target and go after Fool. So, of course, he goes after Fool. Where he finds him in the vault. And here's the sound of coins clinking against each other. And uh, he has that line. He says, oh, I know what you're doing there, kid. He said, I've done it myself a million times. You're just running your hands over all that money. And it's going to be the last thing you ever do. I forget the exact exchange he has. but mm-hmm. So then he comes around the corner. And then, similar to how apparently they were able to kind of spruce up the house for the cops, Fool has very quickly devised an elaborate (laughs) distraction by taking a candelabra and wedging coins within the candlesticks. So as the candles melt, these coins fall and make the noise to distract them. So it's it's a parallel to the distraction they used with the fake recording of the bedtime prayer. It's clever, but you're right. The timing is all off because not only does he not really have there's like twenty much coins time, in there. <laughs> yeah, there's a ton of coins in there, and they keep you keep hearing them fall much faster than the candles could be burning down mm. based on their distribution. It's just like nah, I like it visually. I enjoyed it, and I just kind of rolled with it. But you know, when you stop thinking for a second, you're like, eh, eh. <laughs> it's. <laughs> I did it. I finally broke him. <laughs> it's just the weirdest things bother you versus things that don't. Like the coin thing, it was just like, this is fine, whatever. And you're like, yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't really buy it. But the guy's bursting through the walls <laughs> like the Hulk. It's like, oh, yeah, no, it makes sense. I just, and, and this isn't a criticism. It's just, I never really know <laughs> which one. You're not going to be able to logic away because the coin thing didn't bother me in the least. No, no, okay. Because it doesn't take much to stick coins in. Plus, if you really watch close, the same coin falls twice. So it's like, (laughs) eh. Okay, I can make an argument that they were unable to do it at all in their enclosure and were only able to do it once they got out. Though one could also make the argument that when you're dealing with a small, raggled group of (laughs) underfed and abused children, that they wouldn't have the strength to do much of anything. So yes, I will give you that it's unlikely that they would have the ability to burst through walls. They're not actually monsters. They're just abused people. Although they do look like zombies. They don't yes. look particularly human. Yeah, their eyes go almost all black. Yeah, it's they're really messed up. Like their facial features are, yeah. are not particularly human. Agreed. Which, you know, whatever. I, again, I was well beyond caring about the reality because this <laughs> no, doesn't take no. place. Yeah, on no. It's a fable. But two things I'll mention real quick. One for the candle thing didn't take me out of the movie at all. 
Again, it's in cartoon logic. I just thought it was amusing that just the sheer amount of coins he was able to fit in. But it's a very clever diversion. Second of all, if you did buy this episode and you're listening to it, in light of our new exchange between Jake and Nick, so now you get to see, or now you'll get to hear one of our new props that we have for the pod. I guess we had a disagreement. <laughs> that wasn't entirely dingworthy, but I just a little treat for the folks who spent good money on this episode. <laughs> I'll allow it. it. It fits. I'll take it. <laughs> Did you buy this after editing six hours of Stuart Gordon? I actually had it for the Stuart Gordon episode, and I didn't bust it out. I should have. That episode was such a marathon. <laughs> By the end of the recording, I wouldn't have had the strength to lift this thing. <laughs> <laughs> which weighs like two ounces but uh, yeah hope you enjoyed that episode when it's out but there's a little treat now we have a prop in about a year we're gonna have these fights where eric's playing tubular bells on the friggin' thing <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna get to some fucking found footage movie that i love that normal rational people should not and we're just gonna <laughs> I'm just gonna get into it. I'll just need to buy a full set of chimes with the little hammers and just <laughs> You're gonna hear ding da da ding da da ding da da ding you know the Rocky theme. So Full has tricked him into the position he wants him to be in, where it's Full has somehow rigged up the dynamite that was also in the vault and throughout the house, you know, obviously there's extras in the vault to these wires where he's gonna put them together. And blow them both to kingdom come if the man doesn't back down. Yeah, they quickly established the money bin has a security system on it, electrical security system, and Fool has a line of dialogue where he says, ah, I can get past that, I was taught by the best. So they established that he's you know proficient to get his way around the security system, and now has taken that a step further, and yeah, has rigged these wires to blow the whole house up. And also has the line, I'm tired of fucking around. <laughs> Which... Considering why he's there in the first place, blowing up the money seems like a poor choice. <laughs> Just, eh. Okay, so he went there in the first place for money. Get your bell out, Eric. And he got out. He got the <laughs> coins. He has enough coins to get them by for a while. So money was no longer the motivator for going back. Going back was Alice. And at this point, it's a face-off with, you know, not only am I taking Alice, but I'm going to take you down, you motherfucker. So either surrender and submit or prepare to eat dynamite i i understand that but he's still blowing up an awful lot of money when he knows everybody around him is poor too don't get me wrong and he knows it's their money don't get me wrong i respect your <laughs> thought process but i think it's more of a fight or flight scenario not a i'm gonna grab as much money as i can and then fight or flight you know i think given the stuff he can set up on the fly very quickly he probably could have come up with a different way to kill daddy than blowing up all of the loot too to be fair he doesn't blow up all the loot so we'll get to that so essentially daddy but he doesn't know that that's how that's gonna go <laughs> yeah, he doesn't blow up all the loot he blows out all the loot yeah so daddy does not back down as one could expect from his type he raises the gun full connects the wires and boom the bomb goes off full i forget where how full survives it he jumps inside something I think he ducks behind the safe, actually. I don't even remember. All I remember is like going, no, the money. (laughs) (laughs) Alice is out. Most of the kids have gotten out. The bomb goes off. Just like the windows are blowing out. All the other bombs are going off. This huge explosion. Money starts like just blowing out the chimney and just like raining down on everyone out there. Every single pyrotechnic effect that goes off in the house is accompanied by dollar bills blowing out. 
Yes. <laughs> so yes. everyone's standing outside. It turns into the Joker's parade from Batman 89, where it's just money framing from the sky. <laughs> so the man is blown into the waste hole where he put Leroy, and he just kind of collapses and dies there. Everyone who is poor is now having money rained down upon them. And in the chaos of all of this like newfound wealth, Alice and Fool find each other. And then the children, the people on the stairs, slink off into the night. <laughs> like, like, it's the best ending. Yep. I'm just like, oh my god. Oh. It makes you want to be like, what's next? What's chapter two? What What is the results of these children unleashed on the populace? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because like you see the Stairmaster walk through the crowd, like looking at it, like, oh, sunlight. <laughs> Look, you know, stars. Moonlight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and nobody's like, what's this zombie looking motherfucker that came out of this blown up house? Which admittedly, if it was raining money, I probably wouldn't notice either. <laughs> Alice asks Fool how he's doing. He has the line. Feel like a million dollars, which is our last line of dialogue. And then we get a song playing over the end credits called Do the Right Thing, which was apparently written for the movie Do the Right Thing, but not used. So oh, they really? used it over here instead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice. Yep. I love this movie so much. Yeah. I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. Yeah. I had a blast with this. I think it is a very, very good movie. I think it is probably maybe one or two script polishes away from being a great movie with just some tightening up and maybe some dialogue polishes. Fair enough. But the tonal balance it struck was so perfect. The performances were dead on. It was legitimately funny. It was legitimately creepy. The message of it is obviously incredibly, well, the message of it is sadly apt even today, even more so than it was in 1991. Mm. And as Cartoony as this probably felt to audiences in 1991, 2020 has sadly proven that now now we're living in a cartoon. So, yep, it's one of those things. And I'll say something and you don't see it much anymore, but you talk about all the goofy booby traps and all that crazy shit was something that was actually you saw a lot of in like 80s movies like Goonies and stuff like that. Very popular. Like every rich person has some sort of slide in their house (laughs) in the 80s. And that that's gone out of style <laughs> since, and you don't mm-hmm. see it much, especially not in, in horror, mm-hmm. where they you don't have any of that yep. stuff. But why did we abandon that trope? <laughs> <laughs> we we ended up in the in the aughts with fucking torture porn, but we left the slides back in the eighties. Yep. What is wrong with us as a culture? The slides disappeared with hope. Ah. <laughs> 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 uh. Like the booby traps and saw are like the aughts version of that, like the post 9-11 version of Goonies style booby traps from the 80s. Very accurate. And if that doesn't explain our (laughs) loss of innocence as our country, then I don't even know what we're doing here. Wow, that's perfect. Yeah, very nice. (laughs) Instead of the people under the stairs, it should be where the fuck are my slides? (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like that's like that's some horror striving horror director out there should instead of trying to figure out the umpteenth version of how people moving into a haunted house or inspecting the asylum where bad things happen, put some fucking slides back in your movie. I'll watch it. (laughs) I don't care. And yeah, I think if for folks out there who haven't seen this, absolutely check it out. Like we mentioned, the message of it is rather apropos currently, but also it holds up quite well. It looks good. Surprisingly so. The performances are great. And the craziness of it still holds up. It's still legitimately zany. It's still surprising how nutty it gets. 
So it works very well. It's aged very well. I'm surprised I haven't heard more about it. I've heard it mentioned from time to time in places, but not a ton. So this is, I'm, I'm hoping, I liked it enough that I legitimately hope more people check this out. I think this is a real gem. It, it really is. If even if one person watches this after listening to this podcast, we'll have done God's work. <laughs> We're talking to you, number one fan, Dan Bogart. <laughs> yeah, and I know he was, Wes Craven, when he sadly passed away, he was working on turning it into a television series. No, that would have been fantastic. Well, but would it have... Because if he didn't bring the slides back, what, what, what was going <laughs> to... It's Wes. Of course he brought the slides back. I have faith. Because this movie, in the aughts and teen sensibility, could just as well be Possum. <laughs> and... <laughs> Possum's so good, but so not this movie. <laughs> Eventually we're going to have to do Possum, because I feel like it comes up a lot. Mostly for me, because that movie has scarred me deeply. It's not okay. And... <laughs> But yeah, this movie, there's there's an innocence to it. Yes. That a lot of 80s horror certainly had, I guess. Even though the social issues in this and the real world ramifications are still, they're there in allegory. And the horror is still the kind of over the top, like we keep saying, Looney Tunes type horror. Mm -hmm. That's certainly more present back then. Unlike, you know, today where horror movies make you want to cry as much as be scared <laughs> and it was refreshing it's it's sometimes you go back and you watch 80s movies and you know everybody said ah, everybody was on cocaine and this and that but there's an innocence quality to them that doesn't exist in movies now or at least a, a wholesomeness is obviously the wrong word for this mm. but there's not a lot of nuance to it there's not a lot of layers you understand that mommy and daddy are vile, evil, awful human beings. The movie makes no attempt nope. to humanize. There's nothing good about them. Much like the Reagan presidency. <laughs> and whereas a movie today would, it feels like everything was much starker then. And now it's, everybody is a little bit closer on the, uh, the scale now. And I, I kind of, it made me feel nostalgic for some of the, the more black and white type stuff that used to exist in the horror universe. And I realized this is me pining for older movies after spending six hours shitting on Stuart Gordon's older movies. <laughs> so just throwing that out there. Episode six, now available. <laughs> I mean, this movie, like we, we've said a couple times, is very much a fable. Yeah. You're allowed to get away with making the bad guys caricatures. They are nothing but the embodiment of all that is wrong. There's no redeeming qualities. We don't need to try and establish how they got here or what makes them human and therefore maybe have some good sides. No, they are just all that is wrong. They are the enemy. They're the obstacle to be dealt with. A lot of horror these days is trying to, for lack of a better term, up the ante, I feel, with horror by making your enemies, making your monsters actual human. It's like, okay, I can relate to this person on some level i believe they exist like this and oh my fucking god now they're doing that you know it's it's trying to get more of a visceral personal attention to horror but you're right it's lost a lot these days the fable approach which i think definitely has its merit and could definitely yeah. be a lot of fun even the new it to a degree does that with pennywise at the end where they beat him by insulting him yeah you know which is not to say it humanizes pennywise but it's like it gives him 
more of a, a soul or a personality than you know or the original movie in the book they just beat the shit out of the <laughs> fucking spider <laughs> you know and it's I, I i suppose we ought to do an it episode before i get too much into how much i hated part two. but uh <laughs> At any rate, yeah, but this movie made me think, and it probably, it's highlighted by all the awfulness in the world right now and the need to find some sort of refuge and the fact that despite the politics, this movie felt like a refuge. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, I've watched other couple of Harbor, like I watched The Lodge this week, which did not feel like a refuge. <laughs> despite the title. <laughs> yeah, despite the title. So, yeah, anyway, I appreciated it. I really, I think I liked it more given everything that's going on than maybe I would have if we'd watched it three weeks ago. Yeah, I can see that. To some degree, I think that's a mark of a pretty solid movie that it can speak to the world X number of years after it came out. I Almost don't want to say how many. We, see, I wasn't going <laughs> to say that because I was in high school when it came out. You monster. <laughs> but another thing in, in reference to the way, way back ancient days when this movie came out and Jake was in high school, <laughs> um, Brandon Adams the I f <laughs> <laughs> The true monsters are these two. We're going to just call this episode the other two fucks on the pod <laughs> instead of the people on the stairs. <laughs> I watched a few reunion panels or YouTube footage of a few reunion panels for this which were Brandon Adams who plays fool Kelly Joe Mentor, who plays Ruby, Sean Whalen, who played Roach, and Jan Birch, who was the, the Stairmaster, who came up just a little mm -hmm. bit ago. So I watched a couple of reunion panels, and in one of them, I forget the exact question, but they were basically asking Brandon Adams, who played Fool, they said, you know, what about this movie was so important for you? You know, your biggest takeaway from it. And his answer was simply, Little Black Child saved the day. Yeah. You didn't see that ever. Nope. Ever. Back in 1991. Yeah. Nope. And you don't see it you that barely much see now. It now. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely a recommendation from all three of us on this. I'm thrilled that this was the episode we landed on for this. And thank you for listening and for picking this episode up. Yep. Thank you for listening. And whatever you paid on Bandcamp to buy this, just go back and pay it again twice. <laughs> whatever. It's a good cause. You can even do a little happy dance like Daddy. And me. I paid him. I paid him. I paid him. I paid him, I paid him. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note. <laughs> this is Eric. Thank you for listening. This is Jake. Thank you for listening and for donating whatever you did to listen to this. And for Nick, who apparently froze right at the end, uh, <laughs> this is oh my god, scary stuff. Signing off. I'm Nick Leamy. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. <laughs> I'm Nick Leamy. I figured out a way to explain everything but candles. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. See ya. Yeah, take care. Yeah, you're young. I know. Fuck you both. <laughs>